Throughout most of geologic time, there were only two primordial continents, Laurasia in the north and Gondwanaland in the south, separated by the Sea of Tetes. Gondwanaland consisted of Africa, India, Australia, South America and Antarctica. About 265 million years ago, this continental togetherness began to split. For 200 million years, the Indian subcontinent advanced at a record speed of 15 millimeters per year before crashing into Eurasia. The collision forced the crust to buckle, creating the enormous crumple zone, the Himalaya. Stretching 2,900 kilometers along the border between India and Tibet, the lofty Himalayas are the most dramatic and visible creation of plate tectonic forces. In just 50 million years, peaks such as Mount Everest have risen to heights of more than 9 kilometers. The collision is not yet over. The continuing movement of the Indian plate is putting tremendous pressure on the Asian continent. Serious consequences of these processes are the deadly earthquakes and tsunamis. The Gondwanaland expedition would drive from the Indian Himalaya to Cape Agalhas, the southernmost tip of Africa, across 17 countries of West Asia and Africa, traversing areas of importance in the evolution of the Earth. It would give the expedition scientists an opportunity to conduct exploratory research and further their understanding of the earthquake geology and evolutionary history. The multidisciplinary expedition team comprised of two geologists, a botanist, a zoologist, an anthropologist, a medical doctor, a vehicle engineer, and a two-man film crew. The expedition was led by Akhil Bakshi. The Gondwanaland expedition began its journey from the Jhaku temple near Shimla. From Delhi, the team flew to Bandar Abbas, strategically located on the Strait of Hormoz, Iran's jugular vein. Here, the 19th century Hindu temple, built to serve the Indian community, working for the East India Company, was being renovated. All of Iran seemed to be out on the road with their pots and pans, picnicking, camping on the streets, celebrating the pre-Islamic Zoroastrian Noroz festival as they had been doing for 3,000 years. After the Rouhanis recited verses from the Quran blessing our journey, the Indian Consul General flagged us off from the Blue Mosque. We headed north to Shiraz, through the Zagros mountains folded and faulted beyond repair. 
The Iranian plate is still pushing into the Asian plate, raising the height of the Zagros Mountains and making the country terribly prone to earthquakes. While the expedition was driving to Shiraz, an earthquake of 5.8 magnitude hit Luristan province of Iran, killing 70 people and destroying eight villages. The famous Vakil Bazar of Shiraz is still full of bustle. Though the camels, caravanserais and abacus have all gone, the bazaar still has an old world charm. Its cavernous passageways are alive with the sounds, smell and sights of all corners of Persia. Five hundred years before the birth of Christ, Darius the Great created the desert dreamscape of Persepolis, the ritual capital and the spring residence of the Persian emperors. Emissaries from India were regular visitors to the court of Darius. Raised by Alexander of Macedonia before his Indian campaign, Persepolis still retains some of its original splendor. Close to Persepolis is Nakshirustam, where the unapproachable tomb of Darius lies carved high into a vertical rock face. As we advanced northwards, our Scorpios were winning a lot of devotees. Friendly Iranians engaged us in endless banter about Bollywood actors. The ancient city of Isfahan, it is said, is half the world. It has several architectural marvels. The architect of the Taj Mahal was also an Isfahani. Medan Imam, situated in the center of Isfahan, is the second largest city square in the world. The impressive scale and beauty of the spectacular turquoise domes, the sky-piercing minarets, the mosques, the palaces and bazaars dazzle the eye. Speeding across the countryside through towns of Tehran and Tabriz along the Elbor's mountains, we crossed into Turkey. Driving along Mount Ararat, supposedly the resting place of Noah's Ark, we entered the wondrous Noland of southeastern Anatolia, just north of the border with Iraq. Below us was a grand sweep of a stark white valley, its floor layered with black rocks, scree and crags. Eons ago, volcanoes erupted porous rock, filling this basin. Water and wind wore away much of the rock, leaving a moonscape. We were driving over the North Anatolian Fault that ruptures periodically, causing devastating earthquakes. Our stout-hearted Scorpios climbed higher and higher, along towering walls of ice, on roads wet with melting snow. For two days, we drove along the picturesque Lake Van, 3,750 square kilometers 
of extremely alkaline water rimmed with a series of snow-clad volcanoes now extinct. On the way to the Syrian border from Diyarbakir, we participated in the wild merriment of Kurdish weddings. Stunning ladies and fine-looking men mixed in a carefree way, holding hands or clasping shoulders, they formed a ring, singing and shouting and kicking and stomping their feet to the rhythm of the music blaring out of a car. The Great Rift Valley, a vast system of ruptures in the Earth's face, is separating East Africa from the rest of Africa. This rift system starts from northern Syria and extends all the way down to Mozambique. We followed this geological cleft from top to bottom. Cradled in a bowl of dry hills in northern Syria lies the city of Aleppo, the cultural capital of Islam, the oldest city in the world, continuously inhabited for the last 5,000 years. The dynamism and raw energy of Aleppo have captivated travelers for ages. The citadel is the formidable symbol of Aleppo, regarded by some as the most spectacular medieval fortress in the Middle East. It has been stormed successfully only once by the Uzbek Timur Lan. The Gondwana land expedition, besides being a scientific expedition, was also a friendship mission that sought to promote people-to-people -people contact between India and the countries being traversed. The expedition also carried with it a goodwill message from the Prime Minister of India to the heads of states of these countries. In Damascus, we were received by the Prime Minister of Syria. South of Damascus, close to the border of Jordan, is the ancient city of Bosra. Located at the crossroads of caravan routes, it became, under the Romans, the capital of the province of Arabia. From Amman, at 2,800 feet, we dropped over the hills and slanted down the walls of the Rift Valley, plummeting below sea level, our ears aching from the changing air pressure. Crossing the River Jordan, the expedition entered the venerable city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's pull is as powerful as ever and pilgrims from all over the world flock to it. Israel was observing the Passover holidays and all roads in Jerusalem led to the Western Wall where every stone plays a part in the 5,000 year drama of the city's history. 
The wall is all that remains of the Jewish temple, the earthly house of God and Judaism's holiest site. Next to the wall is the gold-capped dome of the rock the third holiest shrine for Muslims after Mecca and Medina. It marks the site from where Prophet Muhammad made his night journey to heaven. We walked the Via Dolorosa, the way of the sorrows, the route along which Jesus dragged his cross to the church of the Holy Sepulchre, which encloses the site of Christ's burial and resurrection. From Jerusalem, the 850-kilometer drive to Cairo was completed in a day. We drove along the entire length of the Dead Sea, shrinking by a meter every year. At this rate, it will dry within three decades. As the sea's water disappears, it creates these large sinkholes. Traversing the Sinai Desert and going under the Suez Canal, we entered the Africa of our dreams. History offers sufficient evidence that relations between the people of the Indus and the Nile existed since the days of the pharaohs, 5,000 years ago. Indians and Egyptians traded and migrated freely between the two regions, over land and across the sea. There is no better way to trace the course of Egyptian history than to follow the course of the Nile. The river has been Egypt's lifeline for millenniums. Along its length, pharaohs, nobles and lesser mortals have all built monuments and tombs to immortalize themselves. Luxur, the ancient capital of Upper and Lower Egypt, is home to the 5,000-year-old Karnak Temple, the Goliath of Pharaonic architecture. The might and grandeur of the pharaohs still pause Egypt's $8 billion tourism industry. At Aswan in southern Egypt, we were told that there was no land route into Sudan. We would have to take the weekly ferry across Lake Nasser to reach Wadi Halfa on the Sudanese side. 
However, there was a seldom used border post at Arkin under the control of the Egyptian army and permission would have to be obtained from Cairo. Many strings had to be pulled and in the end, after a day's delay, we got permission. After paying our respects at the temple of Ramses in Abu Simbel, the expedition pushed on towards the Sudanese border. The road ended at the barbed wire border. On the other side was a vast sea of sand, the lifeless, treeless Libyan desert. As we rolled into Sudan, an Egyptian army officer said, this is the first time any foreigner has been allowed to cross the border from here and that too in their own vehicles. You have made history. We decided not to take the regular safe route along the Nile to Dongbulla, 450 kilometers away, because it was sandier. Instead, we took the alternative route, 50 kilometers inside the desert, but less sandy. The risk was that there was not a village or a soul on the way, and we could not get food or help if we got into some trouble. Two kilometers into the desert, the vehicle sank thrice in the sand. Luckily, a truck driver came to our rescue. We hired him as a guide. After that, we breezed through the desert like the wind on that dark moonless night. There were no signposts or landmarks or vegetation to guide us. We just drove mile upon mile through nothingness. With a history and traditions that can be traced to the dawn of civilization, the Nubians settled along the banks of the Nile, developed one of the oldest and greatest civilizations in Africa. Many of the Nubian villages are open-air museums. Abiding affinities have developed between the people of Sudan and India as a result of constant historical interaction. Khartoum, the capital of Sudan, is the confluence of the Blue Nile and the White Nile. The expedition would follow the Blue Nile into the mountains of Ethiopia. Today, Ethiopia is a poor country with a rich history. In the past 3,000 years, the country has spawned great civilizations. Gondar, nestled in the foothills of the Simeon Mountains, was our first destination in Ethiopia. 
The two-storied 17th century palace of Emperor Fasiladas is said to have been the work of an Indian architect. The ceilings of the Debre Birhan Selassie Church have paintings of beautiful winged angels and the walls bear impressive scenes depicting religious events. 180 kilometers away from Gondar is Lake Tana, the largest lake in Ethiopia and the source of the Blue Nile. Even today, papyrus boats sail the lake just as they did 5,000 years ago. The lake's islands are dotted with 15th century monastic churches that are still in service today. The 450 kilometer journey from Bahardar to Lalibela was over agonizing dirt tracks. The spectacular highland landscape diverted our attention from our anguish. Driving between 7,000 and 9,300 feet, the landscape was stunning. Rolling green meadows and pastures dotted with cattle. Thick forests of planted eucalyptus, deep canyons and gorges below, and a continuous range of eye-catching tabletop mountains. Seeing the expedition Scorpios smartly winding their way on the track, Little boys and girls grazing the cattle would sprint down the slopes waving at us. The spectacular Ethiopian highlands with bold escarpments and dramatic valleys were formed by the stretching earth. Millions of years ago, the heat from earth's mantle bowed the crust like a great dome lifting the highlands. The dome eventually cracked forming the 480-kilometer-long trough of the rift zone in Ethiopia. The Ethiopian highlands are far cooler and moister than the surrounding lowlands. Although plagued in recent years by drought, this area is, in normal times, an agricultural island in a desert sea. Lalibela lies on a natural 2,600-meter rock terrace surrounded on all sides by rugged and forbidding mountains. Known as the Second Jerusalem, Lalibela now bears the name of the 12th century king whose legacy to Ethiopia was 11 rock-hewn churches. Physically cut from the rock on which they stand, these towering edifices seem superhuman in scale, workmanship and concept. Some lie almost completely hidden in deep trenches while others stand in open quarried caves. More than mere monuments, the Lalibela churches are a living link with the past and testify to the power and spirit of the Christian faith in this ancient land. In Addis Ababa, the Gondwanaland expedition called on the president of Ethiopia 
to reaffirm India's age-old ties with Ethiopia. Relations between Ethiopia and India date back to the dawn of history. Communications between the two countries were facilitated by the trade winds that thrust vessels from the Ethiopian coast to that of India in the summer and brought them back in the winter. Leaving Addis, we drove once again into the Great Rift Valley, stopping now and then to curiously observe and record its distinguishing features. A string of Rift Valley lakes occupy the floor of the Rift Valley between the northern and southern highlands of Ethiopia. Most of these lakes are alkaline. No soap is required for washing or bathing. The Kenyan authorities received the expedition warmly and provided us with armed security to escort us through the bandit-infested areas that we would be traversing for the next two days. The rough and frustrating track, made worse by the rains, fully tested the ruggedness of our Scorpios and the patience of its occupants. Driving 18 hours a day, on broken, rippled roads, we could only average 20 kilometers an hour, but got to our destinations before our teeth fell out of their sockets. The Dida Galgalu Desert was green and inviting at this time of the year, giving no indication of its deathly black bleakness during the dry season. The nomads, herding donkeys, cattle, goats and camels, were happy to get good rains this year after several consecutive years of drought that had decimated their stock. Between Isiolo and Nairobi, we crossed the equator. Flagged off from Nairobi by the Foreign Minister of Kenya, the expedition once again drove across the Rift Valley and into the celebrated wildlife reserve of Maasai Mara through herds of zebras and impalas. Crossing the Mara River, where it flows into Lake Victoria, the expedition reached Serengeti, the endless plain. The plain itself is a product of volcanism. Its layer of carbonatite ash perhaps exploded from the now dormant Kerimasi volcano. Rains turned this unusual ash into a hard pan impenetrable to the tree roots, leaving the plains to shallow-rooted grasses. The grasses nurture more than a million wildebeests and 200,000 zebras. These herbivores are ample food stock for the big cats that never have to wander too far in search of a meal, leaving them with sufficient time 
to lounge in the sun. Increased aridity over the past few thousand years has shrunk the soda lakes in Rift Valley, concentrating their minerals into corrosive alkaline brine, inhospitable to most aquatic life. Free from competition, bacteria and algae thrive. They in turn support millions of pink flamingos whose sieve-like bills strain the water for food. More than half the world's flamingos live in the Kenyan and Tanzanian segment of the Rift Valley. Just southeast of these grasslands, where the rift meets the plain, is the celebrated Ulduvai Gorge, where Lewis and Mary Leakey discovered so many important hominid fossils. The Ulduvai specimens owe their spectacular preservation to the cement-like quality of the carbonatite ash. Further southeast of Ulduvai lies East Africa's largest caldera, Gorongoro. Born about three million years ago in a titanic explosion and subsequent cater collapse, Gorongoro today contains one of the planet's best game preserves. Most of Africa's game reserves are either in or along the rift, on land too dry or rugged for agriculture. Gorongoro is special. Its deep crater walls make a natural border, separating game inside its rim from the encroaching farms and ranches. The naturally protected wildlife living in Gorongoro's 20-kilometer-wide basin attracts tourists and badly needed foreign currencies. Africa's highest concentration of lions live in the crater. However, these fearful animals have warmed up to humans and their machines. Sociable and loving like pussycats, we could have petted them had we wanted to, but showed great sagacity in not doing so. Typical of the lakes in the western branch of the rift, Lake Malawi was formed about 40,000 years ago in a trough opened by faulting. Lake Malawi has more fish species than any other lake in the world and almost all of them are endemic. They are found only here and nowhere else. Malawi is one of the poorest countries in the world. Its economic growth rates fluctuate widely, mostly according to rainfall.
Zambia's vibrancy is evident at the Pakati Sunday Market at Lusaka Arcades. Here, you can buy precious and semi-precious stones, animals sculpted from malachite and some rare treasures like antique African masks and statuettes. As we moved south, entering sub-Saharan Africa, the prevalence of AIDS got higher. One-fifth of Zimbabwe's adult population is living with HIV. 3,000 die of HIV-AIDS-related illnesses every week. The country has one million AIDS orphans, a higher number of orphans in proportion to its population than any other country in the world. The expedition members spent a memorable evening with some of these children. Earthquakes have rocked Zambia, Zimbabwe and Mozambique in recent times. Quakes were not known in these areas. Both the shaken leaders and the citizens were worried. The governments thought our expedition had come at the right time and they engaged us in discussions on disaster management with various ministries and science councils. President Robert Mugabe of Zimbabwe shared with the expedition members his knowledge of the continental drift theory, the evolutionary theory and the mysteries of life and human migration. And we told him about the geological future of Africa. As the continent moves north at a rate of 10 to 15 millimeters per year, in a couple of million years, the Mediterranean Sea will close and Africa and Europe will merge together. President Armando Guebuza of Mozambique, recalling the recent earthquake, wanted the expedition scientists to come back again to his country and assist in developing local expertise in ornithology, botany, anthropology and geology. Throughout our journey in the interiors of Africa, we came across Indians settled for forgotten generations. Here in Inhambane, on the Indian Ocean coast of Mozambique, are 52 Indian families whose forefathers had migrated three to four generations ago. While they are well integrated with the society of their host country, they continue to maintain their Indian customs and traditions. However, in New Africa, the society is in transition as it blends and fuses with Western culture. Nowhere is this fusion more evident than in bars and dance clubs, where African rhythms mix with Western hip-hop to shake up a cocktail of sweaty fans. Music is the heart of Maputo, and every night of the week, there's somewhere to shake your booty. Traditional African dance and music can be seen and heard only in villages created for the tourists.
Transiting through Swaziland, the expedition entered the KwaZulu-Natal province of South Africa. It was here at the railway station of Peter Maritzburg that the young lawyer Mohandas Gandhi was thrown out of the first-class compartment. As Gandhi got up, dusting his coat, a revolutionary was born. And it was here, at the Phoenix settlement, where Gandhiji first experimented with his concepts of passive resistance. His ideas, when put to action, not only liberated India from the colonial rule, but also sped the end of colonial empires around the world. It was Gandhiji's message of love, brotherhood and tolerance that the Gondwanaland expedition carried with it from India, the country of his birth back to South Africa, the country of his adoption. Besides the studies and observations, there was adequate jollity, song and laughter and the expedition left a trail of friends in distant lands. For five days, we drove through the stunningly beautiful landscape of Eastern and Western Cape, following the Drakensberg Range, uplifted when Gondwana land fragmented. Twenty-five thousand two hundred kilometers and three months after leaving India, we reached our goal, Cape Agalhas, the southern tip of Africa, where the Indian and the Atlantic Oceans meet. Throughout this momentous journey that took us across deserts and mountains, jungles and coasts of 17 countries of West Asia and Africa, and in our meetings with high dignitaries, scholars, and the common people, we observed with pride the great respect India commands in the world, not only for the splendor of its history, but for its ability to lead them into a new world of peace and goodwill.